Okay, a question to start. Why would you do something uncomfortable? You ever had to do something uncomfortable? Just wave at me if you ever had to do something uncomfortable, right? Everybody has had to do something uncomfortable. Why would you consider doing something uncomfortable? Well, I can think of a couple reasons. One is because it's the right thing to do. Okay, you would do something uncomfortable because it is, I'll live with it, don't worry about it, it's all good. It is the right thing to do. That's why you would do something uncomfortable, right? You don't want to, you know it's the right thing, you're going to do it anyway. Another reason I can think of uh, to do something uncomfortable is because there's something good that lies on the other side of it. Okay, I can think of some examples. Um, laundry. Not many people love doing laundry. Some weird people love doing laundry. If you're that weird person, I wish I was like you. You know, it's, it's like a task and you get to get it done and it's amazing. But many people I know don't love laundry. It's a persistent evil. We have four kids. It's always there. It's a constant battle. Laundry is not much fun, but on the other side of doing laundry lie what? Clean, sparkly sheets. Isn't it fun to climb into a bed with clean, sparkly sheets? You do something uncomfortable because something good lies on the other side of it. How many of you have ever done wind sprints? All you athletes in the room, wave at me if you've ever done a wind sprint. Right? Don't be shy. Okay, wind sprints. Not much fun. Not much fun. My son Sam and I right now, we do weights one day and then we do speed training the next. And speed training involves wind sprints, it involves ladder work, and ladder work is like wind sprints except with even more agility and it's a pain in my, you know what, I'm going to say enough bad words today that I won't say that word. Wind sprints are difficult. Why would you do wind sprints? Because on the other side of wind sprints lies what's called max VO2. How many of you know what max VO2 is? Wave at me if you know what it is. Right? All you athletes, all you triathletes, I've only ever experienced it twice in my life. Once, when I was playing football at the University of Toronto, we trained so hard we got to the point where we achieved max VO2. Another time was 15, 20 years later when I was training for my first Olympic distance triathlon and I came home and reported to my wife, the fitness fanatic, I've reached max VO2. Max VO2 is when you get to the level of fitness where your lungs are so healthy and robust they can process oxygen and carbon dioxide at their peak efficiency. And when you hit max VO2, you know this if you've ever been there, you can run forever. It's incredible. So on the other side of wind sprints lie max VO2. That's a reason to do something uncomfortable. I don't know if you routinely work late into the night. Now, late into the night for me is a relative term. Late at night is, you know, 1030. But I routinely work late into the night. Why would anybody consider doing something uncomfortable like continuing to work late into the night so that their enterprise will succeed? Right? On the other side of working late into the night lies success for your enterprise. Last example. Why would anybody learn to submit in their marital relationship? It's uncomfortable, right? Nobody likes to do it. It's one of the least popular teachings when it comes to Christian relationships to submit one to the other out of reverence for Christ. Why would any of us learn to submit? It's so uncomfortable because on the other side of learning the art of submission lies marital peace. You would do something uncomfortable because it's the right thing to do and because something good lies on the other side of uncomfortable. If you want to see the impossible dream come true in your life, here's keystone habit number two. You're going to need to learn to do what's right even when it's uncomfortable. So in The Impossible Dream, we're going to introduce you to 14 keystone habits that as you learn to embrace them, will literally help you begin to live like the impossible dream is coming true because of Jesus. You should see the definition for keystone habits on screen. I'm not going to read it every week, but every week we'll have it up there so that you can refresh your memory. 
The key thing for me in this definition is the domino effect of a keystone habit. It's one new habit that reforms many habits in your life. So every week there'll be a different keystone habit. This week the keystone habit is do what's right even when it's uncomfortable. This keystone habit is horribly and beautifully illustrated in Genesis chapter 38. It happened at that time, but Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son and called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hirah the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He, she's driving a hard bargain here. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, um, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, for I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came... There were twins in her womb. When she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back in his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Peretz. Afterwards his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zera. And uh, Zera means seed. So she's being cheeky with what she names her sons here. The one son is called Seed. The other son is called Breakout. I love the name Peretz. If I had to adopt an Israeli name, that would be the name I would adopt. Peretz, break out. It's a very good linebacker name. Genesis 38. 
This is an uh, ugly interruption to Joseph's story. We started Joseph's story last week. This week, next chapter, it's an interruption to Joseph's story, and it's an ugly one. You may be wondering, why is this chapter here? You sometimes come to chapters in the Bible, you're like, why would God cause this chapter to be preserved throughout history, adopted into his canon, and passed down as scripture by his church? Why would this chapter be here? You're going to have to wait till the very end of the sermon for me to tell you why, and it's a very good why. But I like this chapter because it does something that resonates with me. It shows you something lovely come from something ugly. And that sounds a lot like what Jesus is doing in my life. It may be a lot like what he's doing in your life. Bringing something beautiful from something terrible. Let me give you an overview of what's happening here in Genesis chapter 38. In verses 1 through 5, we meet Judah. Judah is one of the older brothers of Joseph. He leaves the rest of his brothers and he departs northward into the country. On that journey, he stumbles into a beautiful Canaanite girl, and he takes her to be his wife. Like any time in the Bible you read, like, he met her, went into her, that means had sex with her, and she's now considered his wife. Okay? She's now considered his wife. She ends up giving him three sons. The concept of son is very important in Genesis 38. It's very important in the entirety of the book. Okay? In biblical parlance, in the context of the book of Genesis, son equals future. Okay? In Genesis culture, the propagation of the family line was of utmost importance. You had to have sons in order to continue the family line. So a son basically equals a future. The lack of a son equals the lack of a future. So it is a very bad thing in verses 6 through 11 when Judah's sons start dying. First, Er dies. Why? Because he was wicked in the sight of the Lord and God killed him. And then Onan dies, and we'll tell you in just a minute why he died. This leads me to my first point. Okay? It is right to do okay, this thing, even though it is uncomfortable. It is right to remember that God notices, even if it means you have to change your behavior, which is difficult. Okay? I want you to notice that God noticed the wickedness of Er, and it bothered him so much that he killed him. How many of you are thankful that Though God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he has decided in his mercy to stop killing people because they're wicked. They're like, thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Okay? But we are today dealing with the same God. So I just want you to notice that he noticed Er and hated what he did so much that he killed him. It is right to remember that God notices, even if it means you have to change your behavior, which is difficult. God doesn't like wickedness. Okay? Therefore, be less wicked. You're like, I'm so glad I came to church today. That's some heavy teaching, right? He doesn't like wickedness. Be less wicked. There's a pretty simple key to being less wicked. Um, To be less wicked, you need to be more selfless. Put even more simply, you want to be less wicked? Be less selfish. Be less selfish. I mean, if you really want to get down to the nuts of the issue, you could put it this way. Stop it with the masturbation. You're like, what the... What the, whew, I'm glad I came to church today. Look, the Bible made me do it. Um, here's uh, verse 11 through 10. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord put him to death too. <laughs> what is the word masturbation in Hebrew? Leonen. To do what Onan did. So to this day, that dude lives in infamy because of what he did. What is Onan's root sin here? It is not the sexual act. Onan's root sin is selfishness. He knew 
that the offspring he would raise up to his sister-in-law Tamar through performing the act of leveret marriage. Okay, this was a, uh, an act in biblical times where if your brother died, it was your responsibility as his brother to sleep with your sister-in-law so that she would get pregnant so that your brother would have a son to continue his legacy and to continue his name. Let's remember who we're dealing with here. Er was the firstborn or the secondborn of Judah? He was the firstborn, and he died, making Onan, the secondborn, now the, the firstborn, the heir. So Onan knows if he raises up a son to his sister-in-law, where does his status go? Will he remain at number one, or will he go back to number two? He'll go back to number two. Who will get the inheritance, him or the son he's raised up to his sister-in-law? The son he's raised up to his sister-in-law. So he is cold and calculating here, and this is what must strike fear in your heart whenever he went into his brother's wife. This means he did not do this once. This means he did this more than once. And every time, so imagine she's thinking this time he's going to do it right. This time he's going to fulfill his duty. And so, of course, she allows herself to participate in this right. And then he's like, just kidding has sex with her, uses her for pleasure, wastes his seed on the ground. God hates this and kills Onan as a result. Selfishness is the root sin of Onan. Instead of procreating, he leonens. This allows me to do a quick segue into speaking for a moment about the purpose of sex in contemporary culture. We live in a culture that says resolutely and almost without exception, the point of sex is personal pleasure. If you or anyone you know allows that kind of perspective to come into your sex life, you are adopting a critically non-biblical perspective. Okay, from the biblical perspective, sex is about procreation. It is designed to bring babies into the world. Why? Because God made humanity to be his friends forever. He has a very large banqueting table waiting in glory, and he wants lots of people to come sit down to dinner with him. This is why his first command to our first parents was, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Why is sex so fun then? Because God knew that once you had a kid, your life would be so shattered, you would never have sex again unless it was really fun. How many of you can say amen? You know exactly what I'm talking about. Nobody in their right mind, once their two-year-old turns into the devil, would ever have sex again. You're like, hell no. Not happening. I know. No. But God in his wisdom, in his mercy, in his kindness, because he so wants lots and lots of friends, made sex irresistible to the human species so that we would fill the earth and subdue it. But... Sex is not meant to be used as a toy. It is not meant to be used exclusively for your pleasure. And it is never meant to be used jealously or selfishly at the expense of someone else. There endeth the lesson. Okay, Onan was using Tamar as a plaything. And that's why God killed him. If you want the impossible dream to come true for you, you're going to need to remember, point number two, that it is right to be selfless even when it costs you something. If Onan had fulfilled his duty, it would have cost him his inheritance. That's why he didn't do it. If you want to see the impossible dream come true in your life, you're going to need to do the selfless thing, even when it costs you something. As you begin to walk with God and begin discovering the deeper truths about life and your place in it, you may also find that the time will come when you need to take drastic action. This is exactly what happens in verses 12 through 18. Tamar realizes she's been sent back to her father's house. Imagine, you used to be a wife. Now you literally have to put on the robes of widowhood and move back home. 
and your family sees you as a failure, right? It's no fault of her own that her husband died and that she had never had a chance to give him children, but it's not her fault. And she's sent home to live like a half-rate citizen in her father's house, wearing clothes that signify her as a widow, even though she's still young. And as the years pass, she realizes that Judah is not going to be true to his word, and she is not given in marriage to Shelah, the youngest son. Then one day she hears that Judah's wife is dead, and Judah's going on a business trip to the north to shear his sheep. And she thinks to herself, hold up, wait a minute. And what does she do? This is very important here. Let me read it to you out of verse 14. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil. Wrapping herself up, she sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. There is something very important here in the text that you need to notice in verse 14. She wrapped herself up. You know what this means in the original language? This is great. This is like the second most important point in the whole sermon. I love it. She bedecked herself. She got decked out. She got dressed up. If I was just a little bit more of a feminist, I would have to say that Tamar here is awakening her feminine power to go and make things right. That's literally what she... Some woman in this house ought to say, thank you, Lord. I'm serious. She bedecked herself. She got all gussied up to go and make things right. Do you notice that God didn't tell her to do this? Very significant. No angel shows up. You know, Tamar, God has heard your cry. Here's what you should do. There are stories in the Bible where that happens. This is not that. There's no writing on the wall. No prophet comes to tell her what to do. But she knows. Let me invite you to start giving yourself a little more credit as one of God's people. Sometimes you just know the right thing to do. Next time, you just know the right thing to do. Do it. She gets dolled up, sits down at the entrance to Enaim. Let me tell you the beautiful thing about Enaim. Enaim means eyes. When you read this literally in the Hebrew, and she sits down at the entrance to Enaim, and she literally sits down at the opening of the eyes. I am too much of a lyricist not to point out that she sits down at the place where eyes are opened. That's why they named that town Enaim. She sits down at the place where eyes are opened. If you want the impossible dream to come true for you, you're going to need to remember that. Point number three, sometimes it's right to open your eyes, realize what's actually happening to you, and take action to do something about it. Okay, if you want the impossible dream to come true, how about a little less passivity, a little more activity? That'll stick in your mind, right? Less passivity, more activity. Less passivity, more activity. And what does Tamar do? She sets her no good, faithless, self-absorbed father-in-law up. If you follow me on Instagram, you know that I promised my best Moto Moto um, impression here. If you don't know who Moto Moto is, go home and watch Madagascar 2. So I am not here trying to impersonate anything other than a very fat, very cool rhinoceros. Judah sees her sitting by the side of the road, takes one look and says, Yo, girl, you huge. Remember that in Madagascar too? Girl, you, you, you look good. Let, let's, let's, let's go do it. Okay, what will you give me though? Uh, how about a goat from my flock? <laughs> Can't do it, his voice is so deep. Okay, what pledge will you give me until the goat arrives? Uh, what pledge do you want, girl? Um, I'll take your signet, your cord, and your staff. 
Let me point out these are key identifiers for a tribal chieftain. This is a smart cookie we're dealing with. Sure thing, girl. Let's go do it. Verse 18c, so she gave them, so he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. I just want to sit for a moment and relish the fact that the Bible is unsanitized, grimy, and all up in the stickiness of our actual lives. The only, world, only reason our worldly friends think that the Bible and the way of Jesus is sterile and out of touch is because many of our people stopped reading their Bibles and many of our preachers stopped preaching it one book at a time and we concocted instead this you know, sanitized religious edifice of hand-wringing goody-two-shoeness that has nothing to do with the living faith and which as a result has rightly been rejected by the unwashed masses whose dirty lives look nothing like the pretend pretty picture the religious rights or the neutered, syncretized left has sold us. The gospel is grimy. How do I know? I've read my Bible. You know how the gospel starts? In the Garden of Eden, where God kills two animals, skins them, and places the skins on Adam and Eve. Have you noticed that in that story, there is no time allowed for God to take the skins, dry them, tan them, stitch them, sew them, and put them on Adam and Eve all nice and pretty. Next time you come to the Genesis story, I want you to picture Adam and Eve as they likely were, covered in the bloody skins of these first two sacrificial animals and dripping with that sacrificial blood as they flee to the east of Eden. The gospel is messy. How do I know? Because as the gospel culminates, who do we see hanging on a tree, dripping in his own blood? But Christ... The lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world for your sin and mine. Do not allow anyone to ever cause you to sanitize your Christianity. It is grimy. It is right down in the guts of our human experience. The real gospel does not shy away from whoring daughters-in-law who are about to be burned alive by hypocritical, whoremongering patriarchs. It's right down in their guts right down in their guts. And Kath and Rebecca and Josh, you can come join me because I'm almost done. How do I know it's right down in their guts? Look at how the story ends. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son Shelah, and he did not know her anymore. Didn't sleep with her again. I want you to notice here that it is right to admit you were wrong, like Judah did, even if it's very late in the game. Okay, as a Bible-preaching pastor who loves you, let me admonish you. If there is somebody in your life with whom you know you need to set right a wrong, run don't walk to them this week and make it right. It is right to make it right, even if it is way late in the game. Make it right. Why? Because redemption is on its way. And this is very, very beautiful redemption. Verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, she put out a hand, and the, midwife t- the, the baby put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Peretz. 
Afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Break out and seed. Let me point out two things here. What happens when redemption shows up in Tamar's life? Do you notice that she gets twins? That is what we call, in the charismatic tradition, a double portion. Is there anybody in this house who would like double for their trouble? I mean, wave at me if you would like a... Be brave. Wave at me if you're asking God for a double portion. I am. Okay? Take great hope here that Tamar is given not one, whoa, but two sons. She receives a double portion. Friends, begin expecting more from God as you dare to dream. Also, feel free to be a little cheeky once in a while and to remember where you have come from. It is no mistake that she names the true firstborn with the scarlet thing around his wrist, Zerah. She calls him Seed. We know her story. She's being very cheeky right here. And she's doing something very powerful. She is naming her son something that will never allow her to forget where she's come from. How many of you know it's important to remember that God has brought you from a mighty long way? Do whatever it takes to never forget the fact that God, like I said, off the top of this service in Psalm 103, has redeemed your life from the pit. This is what he has done for you and me. This is why he is worth giving the entirety of your life to. But Peretz is the one who breaks out first. The boy with the name break out, breaks out of his mother's womb. And why does Peretz matter? Um, because hashtag Matthew chapter 1. Get ready, church. This is the best point in the whole sermon. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Peretz and Zerah by Tamar. And this is the lineage of Messiah, which culminates nine generations later in King David, the greatest Jewish king who ever was. A king so great that the messianic line is called the line of David. A messianic line that finds its apex 28 generations later in Jesus, son of Mary, and Joseph, a member of the Davidic line. Jesus, the one called Christ. This is beautiful. This is powerful. You know why? Because the Hebrew word for womb is guts. Literally, guts. You see, because Peretz broke out first, the messianic line rolled through him. Nine generations to David, 28 generations later, culminating in Jesus, the one called Christ. I'll tell you why Genesis 38 exists. Genesis 38 exists to tell you one beautiful thing. Salvation was in Tamar's guts. And somebody better shout at me for that double entendre. It was in her guts. It was in her guts. As this marginalized woman with no rights and no place in society found within herself the courage to do the right thing. Oh, I love that point. Salvation was in Tamar's guts. So if you want the impossible dream to come true for you, you better copy this gutsy girl named Tamar and learn to do what's right even when it's uncomfortable. You need to remember that God notices you. So change what needs to change in your life. You need to remember to be selfless even when it costs you something. You need to free yourself up to open your eyes and see what's really going on in your life so that you can do something about it. And you need to learn to admit you were wrong when you were. And you need to wait for Jesus 
Jesus because Jesus is the something good that's on its way on the other side of uncomfortable. 